0: Welcome to Element. Uh, if you are new, uh, there are Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. Uh, these actually go along with the messages that we're doing. Uh, there's also workbooks that go along with the Reason for God study that we're doing right now as well. And if you can get one of those from Amazon. If you have not gotten a copy of the Tim Keller book, The Reason for God, we are giving away one per family. So if you haven't gotten one, there are still some at the Welcome Center, and you can grab one of those. Uh, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and then Events, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes. Questions, announcements, uh, verses, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is First Peter chapter 4, verse 8, and it says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to love one another. And do that earnestly and we would understand that this comes about only because we understand that you have first loved us and that you have given such great grace and welcome to us as a people that we in turn should understand that and live that out to those around us first and foremost understanding what you have done in the good news of the gospel to rescue and save us amen have a seat All right, so as I said, we're in this series that we're going through Tim Keller's book called The Reason for God. I would highly recommend that you guys read this week's chapter. It's chapter four, and I know the weeks that we do, and it's a little off, like we're in chapter five, but you're reading chapter four because we did a whole week on an introduction of this. We would encourage you to read chapter four in in the book. Uh, You get bits and pieces of what's in the book from me, but not really all that he talks about in there. Uh, As I said, there's also study guides to go along with this. You can get with Amazon and the and these notes really just kind of go along with the messages I'm doing each each week. Uh, again, we're doing this as an, as an effort to help Element and grow together as a family, that we would be able to speak about the truth and the goodness of the gospel in a way that actually makes sense to the culture around us with the questions that they have, that Christianity is an intellectual faith as well as a faith in belief. It's both these things coming together. We want to be a people who can speak about the reality that's found in Jesus. Now, today... Uh, What I need you to understand from the outset is I might just do my best to offend everybody in the room this morning. And, you know, if everybody gets offended, I've done a good job, okay? Uh, What we have to understand at the outset is that everybody has a bias, okay? Everybody has a bias. If you are a, a Republican, a Democrat, a Independent, a Libertarian, if you're anything like that, raise your hand. Raise your hand, Okay? Alright, now, if you think that the United States and the world would just be better if everybody on the opposite side of you, no, whatever that is, would just agree with you that everything would get better, raise your hand. Okay. We all have a bias. That's, that's, that's where we're gonna start, okay? Uh, When I wrote this message, uh, again, it was last year, and it's when President Trump had just repealed this program called DACA. Uh, DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Uh, DACA was a program that allowed certain illegal immigrants who entered the country as minors to attain work permits and visas. When the program was suspended, it had 800,000 people registered in it. And I knew people who came down on all sides of this issue. President Trump said he is repealing it because when Obama instituted it, it was an illegal executive order. And technically, he's actually right. Uh, They talked about how Congress needed to pass legislation to make it a real law and not an executive order and That was right. Other people on the other side said repealing it does nothing for the 800,000 people that were in it who tried to legally do the right thing and sign up for the program. And they are right. And it was pointed out that a lot of Christians supported Trump in this move because they were more focused on the law than on grace to people who needed help. And in some sense, they were right. And there's so much in this that the right answer to actually help people wasn't found because you had two people on two sides just holding two positions and not looking at the necessity of people who were stuck in the middle of this. And this is what happens when we start to divide from one another, is we bring about injustice. And Christians, no matter where they fell on this issue, were labeled as perpetrators of injustice. Because if you were on one side that said, hey, it wasn't constitutional, well, you're more interested in law than grace. And if you're on the other side that says, no, we need to help these people, it's like, well, you don't care about the Constitution. And no matter where we fell... Someone was going to be mad at us about it. Uh, Think about the Kavanaugh confirmation that just took place. I mean, there's all kinds of he said, she said, did it happen, did it not happen? And in the end, I don't think people on either side really cared. What they wanted to do is have a political fight, and they use people in the middle to do that, and it rips people apart. And what we have to understand is that God calls us to something better, to understand the goodness of the gospel and his rescue of us. So today what we're going to do is we're going to cover the objection to Christianity that Christians are hypocritical liars and they only care about themselves and that makes Christ unworthy of following. Sounds very appropriate for coming into political season, right? Yes, okay, very very timely in this. Uh, most people take a position against Christianity. If you get down to the bottom of it, there's some place in their life or some personal background where they've had a problem with a Christian or a church. They do this because Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. And honestly, there seems to be more Christians who are hypocrites than those who aren't. Uh, Christians, they will claim to be loving, but they aren't loving. They will claim to care about the world around them, but really only care about their own comfort. Uh, That Christians are people who are responsible for Christian music that rips off other music or movies that many times aren't that great, right? We just, what are we doing with that? Uh, And also, Christians have been responsible in history for things like uh, the Inquisitions and the burning of witches. Now, when you look at all of this, there's a reason that most Christians are hypocrites, and that is that Christians are messed up. And that's not meant to be an excuse. It's meant for us to understand this reality. Christian theology and the Bible has never steered away from the harsh reality that God's people are people and many times the worst of people. Like God in the Old Testament saves this guy named Abraham. Abraham is a guy who most likely was building this thing called the Tower of Babel an open rebellion against God. And God shows up and he says, Abraham, follow me. I'm going to bless you. Your family is going to be a blessing to the world. Go to the place I'm showing you. Just follow me and Abraham does but you shouldn't be surprised that just a few verses after God shows up Abraham tries to pimp out his wife for stuff it's part of that culture he was a terrible guy and then what you'll see is God slowly changes him throughout the course of these chapters in the book of Genesis because God takes a horrible person and God begins to redeem and restore you got this guy named Moses anybody heard about Moses Okay. He's in like a lot of movies. Looks like Charlton Heston. Anyway, um, he's this towering figure. Uh, he is raised in Egyptian courts. When he understands who he is and his people, he goes out and sees an Egyptian mistreating one of his people. So he kills the Egyptian. Not okay. Okay. Not okay. But you see throughout the scriptures, God takes and he changes Moses. And in the end, Moses becomes one of the most humble people who ever lived. Actually, Moses writes about himself that Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. If somebody's gotta say it, I guess it should be you. So, God changes them from the inside out. If you look at people who are Christians, many of them will come from really messed up families and messed up lives. They are broken people, and they're people who start to realize their own brokenness. God is on a rescue mission for lost and broken and hurting people, and a church is full of these messed up, broken, People. Uh, last year I was told that somebody came to Element one time and they left because when they walked in the door they met a couple who'd been living together for four years and this couple who was living together were happy at Element and so this other couple thought, well, this church must not care about personal holiness and they left. I found this out because I was talking to this pastor from another church we had met for the first time. He found it out I was from Element and he decided to tell me all the horrible things he's heard about us. I don't know. <laughs> It's really weird. It's really weird. And then he also told me that he hears the pastor at Element likes beer. Yeah. Could be true. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> so weird. Let me let me tell you something about this couple. The week that I wrote this message, that couple actually got married. I got to perform the ceremony, and it was beautiful. But if you knew these people's lives and where they came from, this marriage was a miracle of God's grace. God was growing them in his goodness to be who he was calling them to be. And too often, we don't see what God is doing. And we just write people off as being wrong, and that's wrong. Do I encourage people to live together before they're married? No. Statistically, it's one of the best things you can do if you plan on getting divorced. Uh, People who live together before they get married, 75% higher chance of divorce. So no, I don't encourage people to live together before they get married. But if you look at someone else on the opposite side of you, on something maybe you don't understand or don't understand them, or how could they see it this way, and and you don't get their story, and you start to judge them, you're judging them out of your own pride. And that's just like the devil. I think when we start to do this, we misunderstand what salvation is, that it's by grace alone. And our moral efforts will never attain salvation for us because we will never, ever be moral enough. You can meet one of the meanest people on this planet, this side of hell. I could introduce you to some because I, I know some, but they, you, you could not even understand how far they may have grown in what God is doing in their life from where they started. And so I've told you this on multiple occasions. Number one, just because people don't live up to a message does not mean the message itself is wrong. Okay? In the Bible, you see people screw up multiple times. It, it's led to one of these what-in-the-world questions we did last summer. They, this question was, why does, the, why does God bless people who are so messed up? And the answer to that is God just can't bless good people because there aren't any. Someone recently asked me, why do bad things happen to good people? And I laughed and I said, you assume that there's good people, (laughs) which is only partly a joke, but it's partly true. The Bible is full of how people fail and they fall and God still saves in spite of ourselves. This is why as Christians, our message is not our political cause, and it's not our social sphere, and it's not our sports team or our musical choice or our morality. Our message is always the person and the work of Jesus. And yes, we should be better people. It would cause much less confusion in the world, okay? The gospel would go forward much quicker and better, I think, if we were better people. But it is Jesus who saves. And Christians aren't the only ones who are hypocrites. The whole world is. It's not just Trump who's hypocritical. It is everybody in Washington. It is Democrats, and Republicans, and Independents. It is not just Muslims who are perpetrators of hate in the world. It is Hindus and Christians. There's this old story. You might have heard it. This couple gets newly married, and this wife is looking out the window as they're having breakfast one day at the neighbor's laundry as they, they put it up in their front lawn, and it air dries. I understand this because my wife likes to air dry her laundry. I like mine thrown in the dryer where it's hot and it kills everything because I'm neurotic. But anyway, okay, so this lady's looking across the street. She's like, man, their laundry is terrible. Don't they know how to wash clothes? It's all spotted and terrible, and this goes on for, like, weeks. She's always complaining about the laundry across the street, and then one day she gets up for breakfast, and she's like, oh, do you see that? They must have got new detergent. Their, their clothes are all perfectly clean. And, and her husband goes, actually this morning I just got up and cleaned our windows. <laughs> As believers in Jesus, we must be fully aware of our own dirty windows. That we have a bias, that we look through things in a certain way. We've got to be honest about our own failing judgments. And the truth is that the presence of hypocrites within a movement does not show the movement itself was in error. I would even say for Christianity, it shows that God is reaching out to and bringing in the worst of people, the most broken, the most lost, and he is the one who changes them. The question, why does God bless people who are messed up? Because that's the only kind of people he can bless, because there aren't really any other kind. The scriptures teach that God can't work with just the good guys because there aren't any. So God takes bad guys and he changes them. And this is what he does with all of us. There's a process in Christianity we call this sanctification. Where God is working us to be more like the image of his son day by day by day. It's this great and beautiful word. And again, that's not an excuse for Christians being jerks. It's just the reality of how things are. Secondly, every belief system, any ideology or movement will attract people to it who do not live up to it. This is true from everything from Christianity to environmentalism to liberalism to conservatism and every movement will always want to react to the worst in every other movement. Uh, Scott Dudley pointed out that at Berkeley they have self proclaimed Marxists and they're opposed to what they label as capitalist materialism and yet every single year they rent out this huge yacht and they have an open bar with all these high end luxury goods that they're supposed to be against because it's the evils of capitalism and so Scott Dudley calls them Neiman Marxists it's kind of funny And The Reason for God, Keller points out that Christopher Hitchens says that religion kills and has been an enormous multiplier of tribal suspicion and hatred. He says religion poisons everything. He says Christian nations brought violence and oppression through the Inquisitions. Japanese brought about totalitarianism out of their focus on Buddhism and Shintoism. Islam breeds much of the world's terrorism today. Hindu nationalists attack and destroy both Christians, Muslims, and their places of worship. But you have to understand on the other side of that, communist and socialist governments in places like Russia and China, Cambodia and North Korea who outlawed religion and just wanted to be rational and secular in their worldview, have actually killed more people under those regimes than everybody else combined. And what that tells us is violence is in the human heart. That we are broken. And injustice and violence in the name of Christianity or the church must be addressed and redressed, But because there's an excuse for it, but we must also see that that violence is steeped in the human heart. And it has nothing to do with religion or socialism or capitalism. It has to do with the fact that we are broken people. And God is the one who's going to restore hope. And the redeeming work of Christ is what makes us whole again. God knows we're broken. That's why he constantly reminds us to get our eyes off of ourselves and our eyes off of other people and off of things and surrender to him. And so in chapter 4 of Tim Keller's book, again, read it this week. He really talks about some ways that the church has kind of gotten a bum rap in some of these things. Uh, other places where maybe it doesn't really have a bum rap because it did do some of this stuff. But what I want to do today is I want to talk about this us versus them mentality to go along with the chapter. Because an us versus them mentality, what that does is that is what breeds injustice. It causes us to see everybody else as less than or different than we are. So we've got to deal with that because it's an issue of our hearts. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 verse 43. Our capacity to do this us versus them thing, it's staggering. Again, the, the question is not has it happened in history because we all know it has happened and everyone's culpable no matter what they say they believe. But what happens is some people who have an axe to grind will overstate the evil in another person's argument and understate their own. Like if you have somebody that agrees with you, you'll typically overlook all the stuff they do. As Christians, we have to be people who are honest about everything. If you are a conservative, you should pray to God that Trump loses his password for Twitter. Okay? You should. That dude should stop tweeting. If you're a liberal on the other side and you loved Hillary Clinton, you need to be honest enough to talk about how Hillary Clinton tore down women who had sex with their husband to discredit them. It was terrible. It was horrible. And we must be honest about it all. Because when we speak the truth, we speak the truth because Christ is the one who rescues us. And we point out, yes, this is evil and that's wrong. And we talk about the good thing that God has done to rescue us. We must be honest about all of us. And so we have to ask the question, would what Jesus teach? Did it bring about us versus them mentality? Or did he bring want to bring us together? Well, let's, let's show this. Uh, Matthew five forty three to 45. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus teaches, right? Pray for those who persecute you. All those people that don't agree with you, pray for them to come to know Jesus. Don't pray for them to necessarily come and agree with you in your political view. Pray for them to come and know who Jesus is. Jesus offers deliverance to us from this us versus them mentality that everyone has. Jesus teaches this dynamic that was started by God in the Old Testament where he explains to his people that they weren't chosen because they were better than everybody else. He chose them to bless them so they would go out and be a blessing to others and serve others and tell people about him. To reach out and to welcome everybody in. That doesn't mean they viewed everyone else's opinions about all their crazy gods and all that as equally valid as Israel's God. They didn't have to agree with that, but they had to go out and speak of the truth that God was inviting people in. And this is the God we can know because he has revealed himself. And today we get to say he's revealed himself in the person of Christ so we may know him. And so when Jesus says it's loving of your neighbor as a command, it's rooted in the nature of God. Because God himself loves those who even hate him. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were running away, while we're telling God to get lost, while we're making jokes about who he is, God still comes in the person of Christ to bring us back into relationship with him again because God loves us. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous, deserving and the undeserving. Jesus will go on in this to say that you should be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And in context, it's talking about love and the grace of God. Not that we will be quote-unquote perfect, but we can image God by how we love like he loves. And Jesus didn't just teach this. This was central to his ministry. And this then goes and infuses the church after his death and resurrection with his spirit. And you see throughout the book of Acts, these people who at the beginning were so us versus them. And by the time you get to the book of Acts, they stopped looking at things that way. And they saw what God called them to, and it changed the world. And I think we could be a people who changed the world again. Because God calls us to stop seeing things as us versus them. And see us all on the same side, and that we all need rescue and redemption by Jesus. And so uh, in Matthew uh, 23, verses 2 and 3, Jesus says this interesting thing about hypocrisy. And it's interesting that Jesus is the one who actually defined hypocrisy how we define hypocrisy today. And in Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3, there's this uh, This is my paraphrase. Jesus says, listen to the Pharisees because they sit in the seat of Moses. That That is the place of authority. And he says, do what they say to do, but do not do what they do because they do not practice what they preach. And that is how we define hypocrisy today. Jesus, though, practices exactly what he preaches, and they killed him for it. Open your Bibles to John chapter 9, verse 54. Jesus, uh, going into his last week of life, in John 9, he goes by the Samaritan village to go into it. And I think he does this and teaches disciples about mission and witness and opposition to it. So he goes to stop in the Samaritan village, and the Samaritan village does not welcome him, which is not Surprising because there is really no more us versus them in this day than, than Jews and Samaritans. There's this huge divide between the two people. And so uh Jesus, you know, they, they say, Get out, we don't we don't want you here. And what Jesus' disciples do, this is really interesting, is they get really offended because they think Jesus is going to go set up an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. And then uh Luke nine, fifty four, this is what they said. James and John saw it and said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? This is really a question that they really asked Jesus. They thought Jesus would be pleased by this offer. Do you want us to call down fire and burn them to ash because they didn't open the hotel for you? Can you imagine Christians ever thinking that's okay? We do this all the time. I mean, we have this idea that somewhere at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ that God is going to tell everybody how wrong they were when they did not agree with us. And when you're going to realize you're wrong one day because God's going to show that I was right. No! We're going to realize that God was right and that Jesus speaks hope and rescue and redemption. That's what we're going to see. this We're going to down fire and, and burn them. That'll be great. Can you ever imagine Jesus going, Yeah, yeah, good idea. Let's do that. No! No! Jesus admonishes his followers. He protects the Samaritans. He rebukes his own followers. And just a side note for this whole Reason for God series we're doing, if the New Testament was made up, you would never put a story like it, this in here because it makes you look stupid. It really does. Okay, And I get to make fun of it even years later. So, Anyway, this also makes Jesus look less exclusive. And if you go through the New Testament, you will see all of these places where these, these odd little Samaritan stories in it. Because the Samaritans are supposed to be them. And Jesus befriends them. He befriends an adulterous Samaritan woman. That is like the bottom of the barrel in that society. She becomes one of his greatest evangelists. Jesus heals ten people with leprosy. One of them is a Samaritan. And the Samaritan is the only one who comes back and says, thank you. Only the Samaritan. And that's the one Jesus commends. A Samaritan person with leprosy. Jesus will tell a story about an Israelite who gets hurt. Then along comes a priest and a Levite and a Samaritan. Sounds like a joke coming. right? But it's not. It's this great parable where the hero is the good Samaritan. You might have heard about that. Jesus treats people on their side like they're on our side. He doesn't just love us. He loves more than just us. He loves the oddest Weirdest, most broken, dysfunctional people you can ever imagine. I call those people. That's us, right? That's who Jesus is. And that's what his followers are supposed to be like. Uh, John Ortberg said, The whole human race, it turns out, happens to be on the same side of the one division that really matters. The bad news is, we're on the wrong side. Here's the good news though. Jesus comes from his side to our side to become one of us to rescue and save us. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin took on all of our brokenness and our sin and our shame upon himself on the cross. And he gives us his life and his goodness and his healing. He takes our imperfection and our darkness and the hypocrisy of the human race on himself. And he gives us his life. We must remember who God is and what Jesus did. And and especially in the divided world we're in today. And I think this would include the church. Uh, Let me go somewhere with this. Sometimes as Christians, if you're a believer, I think that sometimes we think that we're going to find the perfect church. Right, We're going to find that place where everybody just naturally loves and gives and serves and cares for one another. It's it's just going to be amazing. The problem is as soon as you found the perfect church, it wouldn't be perfect because you're now part of it. Uh, One of the people in my gospel community sent me this great article by Scott Hubbard. Uh, It's in Desiring God. And he writes this, Sometimes, to be sure, we feel disappointed with our community because something is fundamentally wrong. We attached ourselves to a sick body and then caught the virus. Now it's time for us to recover somewhere else. Meaning, I got mad at someone, so now I'm changing churches. But often, my own disappointments with Christian community have sprung from my unrealistic expectations. I walk into a church expecting to find an unblemished bride, and instead I found a wife in progress. And that's true. And that's not a sexist comment at all, because the church is called the bride of... Of Christ. We are a work in progress. That's the that word, that's sanctification. This is why we believe at Element it is so important to always talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because it's important for where we find ourselves in the world today. When Jesus spoke about the good news, the gospel, it was that the kingdom of God, life with him, is available to everyone. That God is calling people in. The gospel is his gospel. Matthew Bates actually says that from the earliest times, the gospel accounts weren't you know the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke. It was the gospel according to Mark or the gospel according to Luke or the gospel according to John because there's only ever been one gospel. And it's Jesus' gospel. And it was expressed by Luke and Mark and John and Paul and Peter. And they're simply writing about what Jesus had made possible, true life in him. Which this book I was reading last week, not the Reason for God book, it's a different book. I read a lot of books. Uh, and raises this great question. And the, guy, and the guy says this, what is the gospel according to you? What is the gospel according to you? I think it's a great question because every single one of us are going to build our lives on some news, because the gospel is good news, on some news that we think can redeem our existence or the world around us. And it could be money or success or health. I got a crazy vegan friend right now who takes pictures of all this of food. Every time he does, Here, click, here's some food. I'm like, it looks horrible. Why would you post that? It's like, terrible. I got, I got CrossFit friends. Oh, here's a picture of me in my box. I jumped on the box a million times today. I'm like, well, you're weird. Why would you do that? You know? Anything else to do Then Jump on a box a million times in, in, in a day? I, I, we, we think it could be our political cause. We think, again, it could be our morality or something like that. Guys, I will tell you, anything that we make central to our lives that is not Jesus is going to end up dividing us and not bringing us together. No matter how good and great you think it is, it will only in the end divide and not bring us back together. What we have to understand is what's amazing about Jesus, he is not just the story of someone who died at the hands of his enemies. Jesus is someone who died for the sake of his enemies. And there is no more our side and their side. We are called to embrace and speak the truth of the gospel and invite people in. In Galatians 3.28, Paul says, There's no more Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. How are you one? In Christ Jesus. That's how you become one. We are sinful human beings and a sinless Savior who took on the sins of the world to save us. And he says, now you go and love the human race that I died to save because I have saved you. And that is the only place we can begin to rid injustice in the world and get rid of this us versus them mentality. We have to start there. Some people think that the whole reason that Jesus came to earth was only to die on a cross. Uh, The death on the cross is part of the, huge part of the mission, okay, but ultimately the point was restoration of people into God's kingdom, into relationship with God. Uh, uh, Paul says, you know, I glory in the cross, but my salvation is found in Christ. That's what we must understand. We get to be agents of God's kingdom. We now get to go out and extend that kingdom to everybody because God has first extended it to us. We get to become God's agents for joy and truth and love to a bruised up and broken humanity all around us. Jesus' gospel proclaims by his grace we are saved. We are brought in. We are family. And unless we begin and end with that gospel, clarified and deepened by the crucifixion and resurrection, We will always distort it into something that takes backstage to whatever cause we are involved in at any moment. And as soon as that happens, it's going to become us versus them. One writer put it much better than me. He says, The gospel of Jesus' kingdom offers salvation of despairing individuals and the healing of systemic injustice. It is the hope of the world. And I think there's a lot of people today who claim the name of Jesus but don't really understand what that kingdom means. And how we live out that gospel according to Jesus and what he has said. We are called to be a community that bring about real justice. But that is never going to happen as long as we fail to understand why someone else sometimes holds the opinions they do. Whether they're wrong or not. But understanding where they've come from. And that it's not us versus them. And this is really important for us again because we are just... feel like we haven't left political season since the last presidential election, but we're really coming into it now. And what's going to happen is you're going to get bombarded by ads on TV, on the radio, in your mailbox, and they're going to want to try to divide you it's going to want to try to make you see them as the evil, this whole group of people. If you ever listen to people in Washington talk now, it's Democrats, those Republicans. It's everybody. Like There is not one good person in the whole lot. Republicans are like those Democrats. It's like there's not one good person in the entire lot of them. And they're all evil and terrible. And, and this is how people talk. And God calls us to see it differently, that we are a people who are saved by His grace, brought in by His goodness. And in His goodness, we are to understand the brokenness of humanity. We shouldn't be surprised that people want to fight, and people want to be angry at each other and hurl insults back and forth. It just shows the depth of our brokenness. And God calls us to be a people who are peacemakers. And God has sent us to proclaim one message, and that message is who Jesus is. That God is on a rescue mission for lost and broken people of which we were lost and broken. And he has rescued and saved us. And if we ever want the world to be a place that lives out in unity and gets rid of all the barbs thrown back and forth and the us versus them and all the injustice, it starts in the place where we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and his salvation and what he has done to bring us into God's family so that we can be one family. And it doesn't mean that people in family can't have different views and argue about different political things. You're in a family, you know. Like, you don't want to bring that up over Christmas dinner because you'll never live it down, right? See, just, we all got it, right? But our message is always, first and foremost, the proclamation of the gospel. Because that is what brings us together. This is one of the reasons why we talk about communion every single week. And we invite you to it. Uh, we, don't, we don't pass it around to you. It's always a response. You have to get up and actually break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. Why? Because God came to rescue us in our brokenness. And this is the remembrance of what Christ did to remove all that separated us from God and us from one another. It's taken care of in Christ at the cross. And so we trust him in this, and we do this in remembrance there. And if you are in some place today where you're really angry at somebody else who just won't agree with you, lay it down there and understand that Christ is the one that rescues and saves. So the band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you need prayer, if you've been in a place uh, in your life right now where you just are angry all the time at people who won't agree with you and you always think you're right, they would love to pray with you. Maybe not argue with you about it, but they'll just pray for you, okay? Don't be like, how are you voting? And they'll be like, ugh. Ah. okay. Let them pray for you. Don't try and convert them. Uh, because we have to understand, again, sometimes our hearts get really hard. They get very calloused because we get so caught up in our views and ideals and we ha- have to allow Jesus to break that back down so we understand that we are first and foremost a people of his good news, of the gospel, of his grace. And that's what we, we proclaim. Uh, there's offering boxes next to every door we give because God gave so much to us giving as part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response to what God has done. Uh, there's food outside. Grab something to eat. Maybe take some summer notes. Meet with some people this week and kind of talk through some of these things. Where, where are the places in your life where you see it's me versus them and you don't think that someone else is necessarily as good or holy or as right as you are? And be honest enough about it. Because I think the only way that we as a people are going to begin to see the places where we fall is to be honest enough to talk to other people about it. Have people in our lives who are close enough that they can see the places where we are making it about us versus them. And then you can maybe pray with one another so that God would begin to change all of our views to understand who he is and the great grace that he provides because he is the one who will bring about unity. We must be a people who focus on who? Jesus. There you go. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us as a people what it means to actually walk with you, to live life with you, in relationship with you. And many times, it's not just doing the right thing, it's understanding deep in our spirits who you are, and who you've called us to be. I ask that today you would give us a a better glimpse of the great rescue that we have received in you. That we would be humbled and undone because of your grace. And that we would begin to be able to see this world through the eyes that you see it. That we would begin to understand that the only hope our world has ever had is not in any political cause, but is solely found in You. And so I ask that You teach us to proclaim that with our words and our actions. Have us live out lives that bring You great glory so that we will be able to live in that great joy that You provide. So that all men and women would know that you are good and that you rescue and that you save. Have us as a people be part of that message, living out your grace and your hope as we walk day by day with you. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.